Welcome to the 10 Frame Podcast for Emerging Artists, brought to you from the downtown Savannah rooftop suites. My name is Kelly Thompson. And I am Kevin Kirkwood. And you can find us at the 10 Frame on Instagram and our Gmail, the 10 Frame at Gmail. You can find me at kellythompsonart.com and on Instagram at kellykthompsonart. And my website is kevinwillpaint.com and my ig is kevinkirkwood.studio hello and welcome to today's podcast we had the privilege to sit down and have a great conversation with savannah-based artist he's a painter sculptor all-around great guy please welcome chris pontello chris it's great to have you here thank you for spending some time with us Um, right off the top can you just tell everybody where we can find you yeah, so I am on most of the social media platforms. I I do have two Instagram accounts, but my art Instagram is Pontello Who. It's my last name's Pontello. That's P-O-N-T-E-L-L-O. I'm trying to build a YouTube presence, but that's pretty small. It'll just be my name, and I'm I've been diving into TikTok. Cool. And it's just also Pontello Who on TikTok because a lot of the work I've been doing lately is process based, and I'm trying to like share my work through videos 100 you know? i can see that i can see that going very well with your style that you're doing right now also i do have a website cool what is it it's my name dot me so chris pontello dot me you graciously let us into your studio environment and your home and i'm sitting in front of a record player and you know a hefty album collection and I'm just curious, you know, do you listen to music? If you do, when you're making making work, um, what is it? Or do you listen to podcasts? What What are you doing in the studio? I kind of do a little bit of everything. You know, I'll I'll put on Star Trek. Yeah. I'll put on music. The newer stuff or the older series. Favorite Star Trek's new Next Generation. Next Generation, right on. <laughs> but uh, that being said, if I were to answer that quickly, I'd probably say no that I don't listen to music because I feel like I, I do the best work when I'm in silence. Okay. Especially like anything technical or detailed. I really got to like meditate in this process. But then if I'm doing something I don't really have to think about, like if I am just smashing weight into paint and walking away from it, then I could put on a podcast, put on some music. I'm extremely interested in kind of getting into your head a little bit about the technique that you were using the last time I saw your work in the studio where you were integrating your arm wrestling, basically, because you do that on the side. We'll dive into that, too. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to know is, can you just give a little description about what that is, that process, how it came about, yeah. how you integrate that? And then I'd like to backtrack, too, and just find out how you got to that point. So start with the actual arm wrestling. I know you do that. Is it like a a league or a professional organization? The main word we use is club. You know, uh, when arm wrestlers advise people that are interested in the sport to get into it, you need to find a club. Um, You could call it a team, but not all clubs have names. It's not like teams fight against teams. It's one-on-one. But the interesting thing about integrating arm wrestling into art that I learned while doing it was that arm wrestling has been in my life as long as art has. You know, I, I really can't remember the first time I did a painting. I can't really remember the first time I arm wrestled, but it's like my earliest memories involve those things. And I was always obsessed. And 
now I'm told that I, I don't stop talking, but when I was young, I didn't talk at all. I was very quiet. And so I needed something to make friends. And that was art, arm wrestling, sports. Now you're making now, up for lost time, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so much to say now. This body of work really started because grad school at SCAD teaches you that the best work that you can make says something about you personally. Like, you know, I think the example that was given to me at the time was I'm not painting Fabergé eggs, obviously, because it has nothing to do with my life. I wouldn't be doing landscape, snow-capped mountains because I don't live in a place like that. And it seems like the closer you can get to you and what's interesting about you or different, um, that is different than the people that are doing similar work. I think that's what's valuable. And it was a big risk. It was a big jump. And I, I was really deep into a body of work when I made that shift. But I want to say I had like nine months of doing this body of this process based artwork before my thesis show. But it felt like a couple of years. Like I felt like I really was in it. And part of that's because even my representational work before, and it you know, started out with abstract processes and techniques. And then I would just add to it. And I think the truest reason why I made that decision easily is because when I'd look back at my process photos of old paintings, usually my favorite photos are the, you know, the first couple layers. The idea was to emulate, you know, so arm wrestling is interesting because it's something that you can max out with. So you and another person can redline, how we call it, you know, and how often you could do that. What does that mean? Redlining is like when you're driving a car and the RPMs are going right. past 4,000, past 5,000, and they're hitting that red area. In arm wrestling, that's when your guys are just You're going max. to your max. Yeah. You're about to blow out right. like an engine. So redlining, it's, yeah, it's your, you're maxing out. You're hoping the other person gives, out, gives up before you. So endurance is a big thing. And so to emulate that as a painting process, I wanted to be redlining, so to speak, while I was making these paintings. And so as I did the paintings, um, part of the point was, well, the weight should be going up because I'm going to be getting more and more intense. But uh, it's not very cut and dry. I did experiment a lot with the concept. A lot of times the title of the painting would insinuate a part of the process and a part of the arm wrestling process that I was trying to emulate. Like, for instance, one of the pieces is called Way of the Giant Pumpkin. And the Way of the Giant Pumpkin in arm wrestling is uh, inspired by farming. You know, if you want to grow the biggest pumpkin, you cut the other pumpkins off the vine. So all the nutrients goes to that one pumpkin. So way of the giant pumpkin in arm wrestling is you negate other muscles in your body and all the energy goes into the one not one muscle but the one arm the dominant hand and uh that being said the best way for that one hand to make the biggest jumps and so in the painting the idea was to just have a high volume exercise so high volume would be heavyweight and high reps so it's not lightweight high reps heavyweight low reps it's heavyweight and high reps so you're trying to add to the whole volume of the entire workout so that painting was doing as much as I could with the heaviest weight and then taking a little bit of weight off, doing as many reps as I could, taking some weight off, doing as much weight as I could. So it was like a five minute process of maxing out, taking off a little bit of weight, and maxing out again. But I'm doing this, so just so that people listening can understand, I haven't really explained this that much, but basically I'm dropping weight straight down on a puddle of paint. It's a very traditional arm wrestling lift where you would put weight onto a pen that sticks up vertically. That pen is attached to a strap. The strap can be wrapped around your hand and 
in this case my thumb, in different ways to work out different muscle groups. For me, this lift, and for just like a technique in arm wrestling, like what's important is your ability to hammer curl without having your palm go up. So keeping your hand in that hammer curl position while lifting the weight and not letting it twist. So that's, that's good form. So for people that haven't seen your videos online or seen any of your paintings, I guess it might be helpful just to just talk about what the system is. So there's mm-hmm. like a table, if I remember correctly, and you're some of the time you're sitting at a at, at this table, which is also an arm wrestling bench. So in our class that we took, I only saw the paintings. And then whenever I started seeing the process, I was mm-hmm. like, wow, that, that was the aha moment for me. And it just kind of, not that I didn't like the paintings, but by knowing the process, mm-hmm. it was like magical. It was like, wow, that's so yes. crazy. So if you could just take a second and talk about I know that you sometimes stand above the canvas but you also sometimes sit in, at a table mm-hmm. and that that device that you're using can you talk a bit about those two scenarios yeah I guess it kind of it just changed over time I almost never backtrack like as the process evolved I just kind of like adopted that new technique as as the one I was choosing so originally I started with a pulley system that I use so that it's a a fixed pulley system that you attach to a table so that's the same height as an arm wrestling table and the pulley system allows you to to bring weight to uh bring the tension across the table to you like you would but the weight is coming straight up off the ground and so if you were to drop it it just drops straight flat and so i was attaching a piece of wood underneath so that it was completely flat because i wanted i wanted the most splash i could get i tried it with just the plates and it would make some splashes and it would make like a stamp of the shape of the plate but it was kind of confusing and distracting and compositionally i I wanted some kind of like structural shape and so the square just kind of made sense um so you put a an amount of paint on the surface that you're working mm -hmm. with so it's on the surface whether it's a canvas or i know you use the upo as well so it's it's on the floor or on the canvas and i know you work a lot on the floor and your weight with the board is kind of hovering above it so when you drop it or when you release it it hits that correct yeah yeah this is where a lot of the technical stuff comes in because from an outsider's perspective you could think i'm just smashing some paint but it is very technical in terms of getting the viscosity exactly how i want it also the sheen whether it's matte or gloss or satin also the transparency and opacity like these are all things that are factors and so originally like in the beginning i used oil paint and oil straight from the tube is kind of thick and clay like peanut butter like sometimes and there's this medium that i like a lot called lavender spike oil it's non-carcinogenic it's non-toxic but it is a solvent so it speeds up dry time like turpentine but it's not as uh hazardous as turpentine so yeah originally i'd mix oil with the spike oil pour it in a puddle The first time I did this was for the painting called Cosmic Punch, which is also the title of my thesis show. And for that painting, what I did is I started with a really dark purple, you know, dioxazine, and I slowly mixed in Naples yellow light. So just those colors straight from the tube, but mixed with the medium. And so I'd smash the purple, hover the weight, pour a little bit of Naples yellow, which is kind of like a color opposite, you know, on the color wheel, like a not quite simultaneous contrast, but yellow versus purple, even though the yellow's muted and the purple's very dark. It's almost so dark it's not you wouldn't call it saturated and so as those two coalesced and mixed that was kind of the point you know just with the pressure and the smashing the colors mixed and so you'd get splatters of the middle mixtures but then you also get splatters of the extreme versions of that color so i thought it was an interesting dynamic you were talking about substrates a little bit that was on a big piece of linen too so i've, I've worked the on cosmic punch yeah the cosmic punch is on linen unprimed mm-hmm. but i primed it with rabbit skin glue so it was transparent so that was a l- elaborate process to get that 
finished when the actual process of painting was probably like 30 minutes of just smashing paint. And I know when you were talking about doing the reps beforehand, so you're getting yourself to a point of exhaustion. Is that kind of how it works before you you kind of get into the painting? It's almost like you have a routine or a a way to get your energies focused on the painting itself, or talk about the reason behind doing it that way. So I wouldn't say I warm up. You know, I kind of, I go right into it. But sometimes I will start with lighter weight. It's a multivarious thing. Like with the RPMs, though, that, I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah. So if the R, like you said you're red, the red, red lining, lining. Right, right. right? Yeah. So it wasn't like that in the beginning. That was just kind of like the ultimate goal is to work up to that point. So another important point in arm wrestling that I wanted to implement into this process is that the most important thing in arm wrestling are your tendons, not your muscles. And tendons get stronger by rushing blood through them consistently. And so that could be movements with no weight, you know, but it's just high rep and that makes your tendons heal and strong, but it takes a lot of reps. It takes a lot of work. And so in that first cosmic punch painting, I think I was using 25 pounds and just trying to get a lot of like maybe 70 reps. My painting doesn't do it justice for the full definition of what the cosmic punch is, but in theory, what it is, is a coalescing of everybody else helping the one. So I read about this in my thesis a little bit, actually, which is kind of funny because it, it kind of stems from Dragon Ball Z. If y'all know Dragon Ball Z, it's an anime and, you know, the heroes use like energy blasts and there's this one called a spirit bomb and the spirit bomb is created by everybody on earth giving their optimistic energy to the fighter and it creates this ball of energy. That was another painting, right? Spirit bomb, if I'm not... No. No? It's just the cosmic punch. So the cosmic punch is the spirit bomb, basically. Got it. Okay. Because the cosmic punch, um, as defined by this this athlete that I was referencing, right. Devin Larratt. Devin Larratt builds his cosmic punch by arm wrestling like 50 to 100 people at a time. You know, he'll spend like five hours on the table arm wrestling everybody. And the idea in that is everybody that he arm wrestles is making his spirit bomb bigger, cosmic punch bigger. And I wanted to, I wanted to re- represent that with high repetitions in multiple colors. So in each painting, you're dropping the weight multiple times? Mm-hmm. You have to let it dry, right? Or is there any consideration for that, too? You just knock it out in one These are good questions punch. because, like, I almost never want to do one thing. I always try to change it up. So there are some where I hit it once and I let that splash dry, and then I do a layer on top of that with one hit of a different color. So I've, I've done a, a variety of ways. I know you've done some, too, where, you, where you're hitting it and dragging the right. weight, too, which mm-hmm. like adds another level. Maybe the best way to do it is to talk about certain specific paintings. So one of the more recent ones, too, is called uh, Tower Building. And not to get into it too much, but basically building a tower of strength. And then I represented that visually because in the painting, this repetition of hits made a line which kind of looked like a rectangular tower. How big is this painting? So almost all these paintings, except for that first one on linen, are done from Yupo paper. Okay. And it's from a, a roll. And the roll is 60 inches by 10 yards. So they're almost all 60 inches by whatever I rolled them out to, which is usually 72 to 80. I wanted to talk to you, too, about the Yupo. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like it for its translucency, its surface, all of the above? Because mm-hmm. I know when your thesis show was hanging, you had your pieces away from a surface so you could actually get light coming through the back. Is that is that a consideration? I feel bad just to say no. <laughs> I feel bad. 
honestly, this don't feel bad. It's okay. This Yupo paper is not translucent. They do make translucent right. Yupo paper. It's the white or, or the opaque. If I it is opaque, but if I got some sunlight behind it, you'd see. I was going to say you probably get some right. something coming through the back. Yeah, I remember playing with it at the place, and it's like unless you have a light behind it, you're not going to see it. You got to okay. have light behind it, and it made some cool effects. But I feel like if I was going to do that, it'd have to be like a real reason, and that would have to be a part of it. For these, what I wanted was what the Yupo paper is: is a flat, matte, opaque white, no gloss to it, and it's crazy durable. Like you said, I was dropping weight and dragging it, and I'd do that a handful of times before it would rip. Sometimes it would rip a little bit, but it would take more punishment than like a plank of wood would take. Like wood would get destroyed faster than this Yupo paper. Wow. But yeah, so the Yupo was important. The reason I wanted the flat matte white was because of a color theory element um i'm pretty obsessed with transparent hues you know and how luminous they can get and uh man yeah if if i could get a good transparent splash on this white paper it just glowed like nothing else and then using organic pigments Mm -hmm. quinacridones and phalos phalos yeah and i would also use opaque um, and kind of have both contrasting. Mm-hmm. So talk about if we can just slip back into the tower <laughs> building painting. And you were talking about some pigments yeah. that you were using to that. So for that one, I started with dark and transparent and made a gradient to lighter, warmer, and more opaque. So basically started with a dark phalo blue, which out of the tube almost looks black also. But when you smear it transparently on white, it's like more vibrant than a sky blue. And then as I went down the line, I had a variety of blues that were the flash paint. Right. So flash What's, is a brand. Yeah. What is flash real quick? It's not acrylic, but it is water-based, but it's a vinyl based paint. It's not acrylic. It's water-based. So it, it kind of, in my opinion, it kind of acts like watercolor in the sense that it thins out and dilutes real easily. Like I feel like I can dilute it in water and stir it a couple times and it's, viscous whereas acrylic paint you gotta kind of break down the polymer and you still kind of have chunks you know it's kind of harder to mix up yeah i haven't worked with it a whole lot but i i know the surface looks almost like a gouache surface mm-hmm. where it has that really kind of velvety yeah. matte kind of rich look to it but the best thing about it so okay i said it's like watercolor it's more like gouache but it's nothing like gouache in the sense that it's not resoluble you know gouache you can make wet again People use it for design drawings for that reason, but this, once it's dry, it's as hard as plastic. I mean, it is vinyl. And so that adhered to the plastic paper. It just makes for really archival work, which is what it's all about. Like, yeah, and the final result, I mean, is when you're talking about it adhering or bonding or binding with the surface, when I looked at your pieces, especially the ones on the Yupo, it almost looks like it's part of the surface. Mm-hmm. It does It's not sitting on top of the surface. It's kind of connected. That speaks to the to your process, though. You're con- you have a lot of consideration, and you're thinking about this color needs to go on first versus this color, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's versus doing pop art where it's just you know volumes of color, and you're mm-hmm. just kind of not thinking about what you're doing. You're, there's a lot of consideration into your work. So. Yeah, no, I'd I'd say eighty percent of the time is like prep. Yeah, and, and not not it's fast too, right? not including cleaning, like. Right. Prepping, cleaning, that's 99% of it. It's a good thing you didn't have to clean your studio either because 
you just spend a hundred percent of your time prepping and cleaning and uh i mean best work is the messiest work yeah, you know exactly. so do you do swatches do you when you're thinking about color theory and what you're going to be using on the next piece do you do test panels do you do you know color swatches i have i'd say the way that i really got my color scheme in mind was when i worked at blick i worked at blick art materials for about five years and you know you're stocking paint all day and you're getting really familiar with every brand of and every color that every brand has and putting colors together in your head i wouldn't say i don't do swatches a lot i've done it once or twice really just to see what the contrast is like i feel like i do swatches if i'm doing something more minimalistic but if i'm doing something with 12 colors i'm just kind of letting it go yeah and then maybe i'll just cover it all up with the new color but if i'm doing something clean like like behind you the blue one is on linen and i so i knew that was gonna be pretty simple i was very specific with that color and that was a color experiment so a lot of my color schemes and my paintings are start as experiments and then I, I want it to surprise me somehow so so we're looking we're looking at like a 24 by 36 inch right. canvas stretched linen it's raw linen right? yeah and i'm just curious what would you call that blue uh, indigo or phthalo yeah Something well like that. so that blue is purple and turquoise mixed together oh wow so phthalo turquoise so phthalo is that organic transparent stem phthalo turquoise so it's green blue and then uh cobalt violet which is also a transparent kind of dark purple and so what, what i'm playing into is the idea of additive color mixture with a subtractive color mixing process you know so in color theory additive color mixing is what makes computer screens and tv screens work you know um you mix all the colors together to get white whereas in painting it's subtractive so you mix all the colors you would theoretically get black a lot of times you get brown because the pigment quality isn't very good for this one, I knew I was going to smear it transparently. And so when you smear pigment transparently, you use the light that passes through, bounces off the substrate, and comes back. And so mixing a couple tertiaries to get a primary, in theory, shouldn't work. But if you're using a transparent process that allows light to pass through it, you can get that primary color. You know, so it's one of those things. I expected a muddier color, but it's a very vibrant blue. It's extremely vibrant. Yeah. So you're talking about working subtractively, which is something I'm very interested in in my work too. I do a lot of that where I'll, I'll lay down a layer, and because it's over top of something else, I'll work subtractively to kind of remove what I don't want to cover up and leave what I want to, to stay on the surface. What are you using to smear with, to work subtractively with? Do you use a palette knife? Is it rags? Or what do you use to make your marks with when you're working subtractively i'd say that it changes by the series what about in that piece in this piece in particular was just a squeegee a screen printing squeegee okay very sharp edge but wide in that series i kind of felt like i was starting to get too close to like gerard richter or somebody so i was trying to make like lines and marks and shapes and repetition but also letting it be like in my opinion sometimes richter will overwork something He'll swipe it to the side and I'll be like, oh, there it is. Keep it. And then he'll do eight layers on top of that. And it looks like eight new paintings, which is fine. I'm not saying nobody should do that. I'm just saying that what I learned from that is that what I would want to do is see what happens in that pure moment of doing less. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you stopped on that when you did because you almost have the a great mixture of the color usage, the transparency, and but also the mark making. Mm-hmm. It's not overworked at all. It looks very fluid and it looks like it was intentional. And then you just got out and you were done. Oops. So it, it may have Let's taken see. a lot longer than that. I mean, everyone knows that sometimes it takes a lot more time to make it look. 
yeah. unintentional, but it looks like um, you have about three-fourths of the canvas kind of starting with a very large kind of circular motions starting from the bottom left going up to the top left you do have a little bit of an angular motion as well some very wide strokes with the looks like there's this is where i would like to bust your balls yes i know you're doing that on purpose i'm trying to uh, actually describe it but now i won't be able to so i appreciate it's better than i can describe i just well see i think something that would help is in the title right so like the title of the painting is blueberries in my toes and in the midst of doing it i just watched everybody loves lucy yeah. there's that episode of her like stepping in the grape right vat yeah. and yep. getting all you know grapes in her toes and just very blue color and as i was painting it i did get like blue paint in my toes and i don't know it was a whole full circle realization thing but the reason i say that too is because it kind of looks like someone stumbled and messed up on it like there's splatters right you said three-fourths well one-fourth is open with splatter marks going across it and if i was to describe it i'd say it's almost like a cascading of figure eights that's what i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) so for me and the way i paint when i do paint i overwork things Mm. man there's no way in in this world that i could just do those really quick motions and it looks great right and mentally it's like wow i just knocked this one out of the park i would go back in inevitably i would go back in and just start it's such a a skill that I don't have. Just do something, mm-hmm. stop, and that's just it. That's it. I appreciate you saying that, but I do think it's an illusion. So yeah. the way that you do it is you find a way to allow yourself to erase a lot. Okay. So like Yupo paper, it's real slick. Mm-hmm. If I'm using a squeegee and I make a big mark and I don't like it, I can just wipe that whole thing off and start from scratch. Got it. So then like all you have to worry about is like wasting paint, but if you're using a lot of medium, a lot of water, you can extend it a lot. But so I'm there's learning. no residual mark at all. If you squeegee it off, I mean, you don't see anything that's left. You do. That's a good point. So in the earlier work, there were a lot of those kind of moments. You know, this is not my arm wrestling work. This is the series I did right before the arm wrestling series where I needed to implement something about me. But these were just explorations and non-objective compositions. And so like the one next to it, the yellow, that was almost like me trying to intentionally overwork something. And those layers are dry. Do you, do you want to describe this one in three sentences? <laughs> it's intentionally overworked. <laughs> You've got two more sentences. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to describe while craning my neck to the left. So like you were talking about, oh, is it easy to do on linen? Well, no. And so the blue in the background, see how you kind of see the horizontal stripes? So I actually took a wet brush to that trying to erase as much as I could. And so with the linen, it was different because it kind of worked it into the texture of the fabric. But now that's unprimed linen. So let me say this one thing about, because we're still talking about those paintings. This is so this goes for the blue one as well. These are on primed linen that I unstretched and I turned it around. And so it's, unpri- it's the unprimed side of a primed canvas. And the reason I did that is because linen has kind of an open tooth and that looks brighter than linen that's not primed on the back because you still see the white little squares shining through plus you're probably getting some light that's going through the canvas or the linen and hitting the white on the back which is on the back side of that and reflecting back to you if you were to look close you can definitely see the white gesso so with cosmic punch i did the opposite utilizing the color of the linen but then on the back of the cosmic punch i gessoed it in black so that it'd be a darker linen on the other side and then when I exhibited that piece at my exhibition, I hung it from a wall so you could see it in the full round. You could see the back and the front. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I really like being able to see both sides of it. That's nice. I think that's a good way to display it. So, as you know, this podcast, the impetus behind it was to get information out to emerging artists who are trying to get from undiscovered as an emerging artist, we're trying to impart some information to get people to the next level. And you're kind of at the beginning of your journey, so to speak. I'm, I don't really know your the history pre-MFA mm-hmm. program, but what would you say has gotten you to this point to somebody that may be just starting out or things that you wish you had known five years ago? It's a tough one. Um, honestly, I did it a lot better when I was younger. So advice-wise, it's tough. Like The things that have made me succeed aren't things that you would expect. So for instance, most of my patrons are from being social, like literally going to a bar, talking to a stranger, that person commissions me. Or I used to work in hospitality for Diamond Hotel, and I'd work with regulars and people that could afford to you know, stay there, and I'd become their buddy because I was the bellman, and they'd commission me. And then over time, like that became like a body of patrons. But I'd say like keep every contact you make, you know, don't burn bridges, especially in school, like keep your friend, like right now I'm doing this podcast because y'all kept in touch with me, you know, like your opportunities are going to come from the people in your life. I wouldn't expect some big thing out of the blue. You're going to have to kind of work for it. And as far as advice goes, like I wouldn't be afraid of, don't be afraid of doing exactly what you want to do. If someone says you'll make a lot of money doing dog portraits, don't do that. Do what you want to do. You know, because it's better to struggle for a few years and end up where you want to be than to get success quickly and then fall out of love with it in a year. You know, I wouldn't advise people for success as much as sustainability. Yeah, that, that's definitely good advice. And I think, you know, most artists who are doing it truly because they, they love it. You know, anybody who's doing it just to get in and make some money is obviously in the wrong profession. But for sustainability, you know, I think that's definitely good advice. As far as, your current practice goes, do you have a regular practice where you have a set schedule? What does your artistic studio practice look like yeah. now? I know you, your studio has since moved from your location from the last couple of years. And even if this may not be your optimal situation now, where would that situation, what would it look like? Well, that's a good question. It is an interesting time because I did just finish grad school. I'd say now I'm kind of gauging where I'm at. Right now, the task is digital. I have so much documentation of all these paintings I've done. I probably shared 10%. So something I really want to like take a stab at is getting better at editing these videos, getting those out there, getting exposure that way. And that kind of goes back to my advice. It's hard to advise about something I know little about, and that's social media. It's hard for me to give advice about it because I'm still learning about it. But you do it. That's my current effort, my current art right now is editing the art that I've already made. I have this strong urge to make a new series and make it really impactful, but I'm being honest with myself and giving myself a little bit of time. You know, grad school was a lot and I made a lot of transitions and I had some hardships that I got through. And so I'm just being honest with myself. The artwork that I've done lately has kind of been for other reasons, like gifts. You know, this painting behind me is a, uh, a gift to my girlfriend and it felt great getting back into portraiture is something I, I used to do a lot. And doing this kind of reminded me of like, okay, this is kind of what got me into it in the first place. And it's reminding me that this is where my skill set is. And I do see some of your abstraction in the background, though. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's a nice... I just can't do a flat. It's a nice background. addition, though. To, I mean, it really adds something. You're, the likeness is obviously, I don't know these people, but I mean, it's, it's very engaging. We're looking at a, a painting that looks like a photograph. It's hyper-realistic, male... It looks like a father and daughter, probably. 
Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, so, then, and then you're very textural. It almost looks like you painted wet on wet and the ground layer. Is that something you would have done before? Maybe you worked on this abstracted yeah, series? I'd say with undergrad and going into in between undergrad and grad, a lot of the work that I did was combining these abstract techniques with representation on top. And usually I, I like to let one inform the other. This is different. So this is a very serious gift for my girlfriend. You know, this is her and her father. When she was, I think, five or six, he passed away when she was maybe eight. And whenever I do a portrait of somebody that's passed, I always try to do it life-size because then you get to see that person's face like you would in real life. And it's, you know, I'm just trying to do the best I can for her. That's why it's as realistic as I can get it because I want her to have the idea that her dad is here and she has that connection if she wants it. You know, I'm not trying to put... That's well said. I like it. You know, I'm not trying to put my gestural flair into it. The background... I just wanted to make some, some colors that fit. It's interesting that advice I got early in my graduate degree was that this process was good because nobody knows how to do it. You know, it's confusing. And then the process videos are pretty fun, but that's done with spray paint. And so I'll just use like too much spray paint and it'll, it kind of turns into like a poor paint technique, but then it dries weird because spray paint dries fast. So when you have these wet pooled areas. It's almost like a reticulation in printmaking. Mm, yeah. Where you get those little, right. where the pigment kind of gathers mm-hmm. in, in various areas a little bit irregularly. It gives it a nice textural surface. And then, you know, the whole idea of the arm wrestling work that I have been doing, you know, it has that element of struggle and emphatic effort, which I thought was going to be shown in the spray paint work, but it, it doesn't really translate. But the way that I made a lot of them is by taking a chisel and popping the can and it blows up and that was my introduction to your work yeah <laughs> probably a year or two ago two yeah. maybe a year and a half ago yeah the videos that you posted online the ones that i remember it was like a night scene you're like maybe in your backyard you throw some paint down i don't remember that process but i remember you sticking a can of paint on on the side of it and just puncture in it and it just explodes the, the paint all over the canvas it was amazing that started out as, as shotgunning beers right you started out with puncturing the beer can, and then it evolved to spray paint, and then... No, actually, so this is worth giving this plug out. So I get that from my buddy Diego Le, as he likes to go by. Le Diego. He was on um, our podcast a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yes. And so he's a graffiti writer, and I'm not. Yeah. You know, so the thing is, is like spray paint has nothing to do with my life, but it was a fun technique and, that I played with. But he was telling me, because I like to use every drop of paint. And so I'd get to the bottom of the can, and I'd be like, man, I wish I could use the rest of it. And he's like, yeah, you know, you just pop it open, and you get to use the last little bit. So then I took that as, or I could just pop a full can <laughs> and see what happens. And explode it, yeah. Take it to the next level. Because sometimes they get clogged, and sometimes you can't even use it. And I'm like, oh, you're tempting me, yeah. you know, like, for clogging. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I want to know what's next. I mean, I know you're taking, you're kind of, I totally understand taking, mm-hmm. um, you know, trying to um, catch your breath. Where do you want to be in a year or two? Um, or do you plan on staying in Savannah? Are you looking at a relocation? Or are you just going to broaden your your reach a little bit where yeah. you're showing? Or Yeah, I'm, I'm open to relocation. Um, I probably should. I've been in Savannah for a long time, um, about half my life. And so I got an MFA to teach. And that was the That was the goal. It wasn't so much to learn how to paint better or how to sell paintings better. I really wanted the MFA to be more academic and to be a good professor. Um, so that's the goal, looking for teaching jobs. That could take me anywhere, you know. On a whim, 
my girlfriend and I almost made plans to move to Atlanta because we had a couple opportunities, but that fell through. I'm looking at a lot of places, you know, uh, RISD in Rhode Island, looking at Chicago and North Carolina and Florida, Savannah still. Like, so teaching is, is high up on your priority list. Right. And so I'll say before I started grad school, I was going in the direction of getting more into wood sculpture. I was making like these yoga poses, just carving out of wood, some busts. And I was really getting into like learning about marble carving, but I didn't get into marble carving because it's expensive. So in a perfect world, if I won the lottery tomorrow or I had a commission to do whatever I wanted, it'd be sculptural, whether it's marble or wood, even metal. I think over time, I want to integrate this, everything I've learned from what I'm doing and I want to make my sculptural work to the same level. You know, I think I've been able to experiment and learn enough about painting on surfaces. I feel like I've taken painting in my practice to a very high level, which involves research and history and concept. If I could do the same thing with wood carving, I'd be very happy. And then in terms of teaching, I feel pretty confident in teaching a variety of subjects, but if I could teach sculpture, I think I'd be doing something for the art community because... That's something that's been taken out. We're getting closer and closer to digital. You know, now NFTs are the big thing. And not to segue too much, but one thing I, I think about is, this also goes back to advice, but like sometimes I hold on to traditional techniques stubbornly because I'm a big fan of Da Vinci and Michelangelo. And But then I realize, what would they do if they were alive today? Like Da Vinci would, would be Beeple. Like Da Vinci would be the guy with the most NFTs probably. He'd have an, a 3D printer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wouldn't. He wouldn't be doing oil paintings. But that's also like I'm not a Da Vinci type, of course. And you know, with with young people that are starting out, I'd advise them to think like that. Like think like an innovator, not like an old man poking around in the dirt, like I am. You know? <laughs> I don't know. You can innovate in the dirt too. Yeah, that's, you know, that's true. You've learned how to bring different aspects of your of your life together to create what's uniquely yours but i want to back up a little bit what was your first arm wrestling experience what got you into arm wrestling tell me about that that first and and why you were like yep this is for me did you like crush some big dude's arm or i'll try to give you back in the day and recently so that it's kind of full circle so back in the day yeah it was some big dude named kyle (laughs) kyle was one of those guys that was like borderline bully like he was just big smelly you know and and I I wasn't a big kid like I was like skinny and lanky but and it's one of those chicken or the egg kind of things like I don't remember if I beat Kyle and then I bragged to my dad and then my dad was like well you know I've won like three armistice competitions when I was in college and then I heard that story a thousand times I don't know if I heard that story and then I went into school thinking I'm going to I'm going to crack someone. Yeah, you're like, man, this is genetic. I'm born to crush Kyle. (laughs) But something about it, like, okay, so what it was is I spent a lot of time in after-school care. Like, my dad worked till 6 most days, so I'd spend a few hours with whoever's hanging out. And, you know, after-school care, it's like free reign. Like, the kids hanging out without teachers. And for some reason, like, I know it wasn't me because I didn't talk enough to convince everybody to get into it. But for some reason, arm wrestling was a big thing at the school at that time. Like, we had to... A kid that was in that was in gymnastics, and he could do pull-ups all day, and so he would arm wrestle people older than him, and it was a big deal that he could beat them and stuff like that. Like there were those kind of narratives around, and so I always felt like it was important. And not, I hate I hate talking about it like I'm the man because when you get into arm wrestling as an adult, it's a very humbling experience. Okay, 
But as a kid, it was clear that I had like an advantage for some reason. I wasn't bigger. I don't know if it was an endurance thing. I don't know what I did differently. But then um, into high school, I basically arm wrestled until people just didn't want to arm wrestle me anymore. And then did I'd, you do it for money? No. Did you get any cash? Pure pride. Ah. Um, but then... should have bet Kyle a couple bucks. Yeah, right. <laughs> Even though I, I, at that time, I had a lot of artistic ability. I, I could do portraits really well. I just didn't... Maybe I talked to that talked about that with like teachers and girls and stuff you know but any big dude i wanted to make a friend we just talked about arm wrestling as artists especially painters we think about bodies of work i don't know if it's it's really segmented i feel about my work that way where i've you know i'll get into something for a while and then i'll move on to something different you see arm wrestling being a permanent part of what you're working on or is this just something where you're you're like i've i've done that i've worked it out i got that out of my system uh or is this something you'll continually come back to experiment with yeah i mean i'm not sure chris i want to see these things mambo like <laughs> huge ass they're amazing see, i want to see this tiktok vid- video of you lifting up like a, a, a hundred pound plate that's like 16 you know <laughs> inches wide or whatever you know or just on top of your house just yeah yeah or you or you know what you rent one of those like a giant crane and you get like a <laughs> uh you know 24 foot thing and just you know i've, I've thought that like so i've thought of stuff like that because um katrina gross came to scale yeah, yeah and she yeah. does these large-scale abstract mm-hmm. pieces and as big as they are you go to the museum it's the biggest abstract piece you've ever seen she's done bigger and so with that in mind i thought like yeah how can i upscale it but then i'm also Heck thinking yeah, about that sounds exciting to me personally like and it does sound exciting but and no offense but sometimes i try to avoid ideas that are like the first idea like everybody's first idea like let's say the idea is to do uh landscapes you know low country landscapes that's your first idea and that's most people's first idea is going right. to be probably not the right idea right yeah. like and so for me with the armorsing thing, it's like, if we spitball about it real quick, the first 10 are probably ideas I've had. Sometimes they are the right idea to do. I'm trying to but. manifest. <laughs> I see a big ass painting of yours in a huge museum gallery. That's what I'm trying to do. Like a two story oh, atrium, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah, I can or see that. Me, like a train station or let something. Let me tell you what I am thinking though. Cause I mean, I agree. I, I'd love to see that the bigger, the better, but I'm also thinking about downsizing it. So the armorsing community is pretty big. It's growing exponentially. That's a that's not an exaggeration. It's a good word to use. How's the local scene? So that ties into it. But let me say first, I'll, I'll answer that question. But because armorsing history is a big topic right now, I'd like to do some narrative paintings of certain moments and matches. You know, with this realism ability that I have, I think it'd be cool. And I think there is a market for it because the sport is gaining popularity so much. Like, I don't know, like. Dan Marino throwing his last Hail Mary touchdown. Like that as a painting would be popular because people know the history. I don't know. It almost feels kitschy, but I think it'd be fun to do. I do paint realistically enough to that could make it interesting. But also if I took that into sculpture, you know, like sculpture, static matches. But you're asking about local. So the club that I'm with is in Richmond Hill. We kind of compete for dominance with Florida and South Carolina. The best guy in South Carolina just competed at this worldwide event called East versus West. His name's Adam Warzinski. And uh, 
for me, it's a big deal because my club has competed against that club. Like I've seen Adam compete against some of my teammates. So I kind of know where the level is in that sense. Adam at East versus West beat a very prominent Russian arm wrestler and a guy with a big name. It wasn't a small feat and he did it casually. And so it tells me that the level on the East Coast in the South right now is really good. And I'm kind of a part of it. I wouldn't say I'm very good in terms of my club. Like sometimes I joke I'm the weakest link, but I'm somewhere in the middle. Time is everything. I have club members that are in their 50s. They've been doing it for decades. And this guy named Andy Fuller has like over 100 arm wrestling Do you get better titles. with age? I mean, an experience? Yeah. yeah. So like right now, the best guys in the world have been doing it for 30 years, and they've been the top-ranked guys for that long. And they're in their 50s. So the best arm wrestler of all time, John Brzezink, he's seen as like the Michael Jordan of the sport. Some people say that he's the most dominant athlete in any sport ever because he's been at the top for decades. So since he was 19 to today, he's still like top five. He's 56 now. So how many athletes are at the top of their game for that long? You almost really can't because of certain injuries. And then why do people avoid arm wrestling? Because of potential injuries. Well, all the injuries you can get here can be healed and you can come back stronger. But concussions, back, leg, knee, that kind of stuff doesn't heal as well. Yeah, I don't know. I can just see myself attempting that and see my biceps separate <laughs> from my arm. It happens. I, I'm sure it happens. Yeah. And then those people come back. So the reason people come back stronger from bicep tears is because they whisper to their doctor, attach it higher. Uh, titanium uh, <laughs> wire. <laughs> to buy, yeah. Put the Kevlar. Do you ever see Steve Austin in The Six Million Dollar Man? That's what I want. <laughs> Bionic arm. Well, Chris, I think... In closing, I first want to thank you for inviting us or and letting us come to your space. I appreciate your knowledge of painting, your unique ability to apply paint in a special way and apply you know what's important to you and apply it into your art. It's great. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Yeah, and, you and your thought about doing what you love and the longevity over trying to become instantly successful, even if it's through Instagram or wherever, that's a million to one odd. So persistence and you know doing what you love, I think, is important, and I appreciate that sentiment. Thanks. Where all else fails, persistence prevails. Yeah, got to keep reminding myself that. Remind people where they can find you. Yeah, uh, Pontello Who is my Instagram. So I'll spell my last name. P-O-N-T-E-L-L-O. My website's chrispontello.me. Chris is spelled generically, C-H-R-I-S. Instagram is also Pontello Who. Yeah, contact me for anything. I like to spitball ideas. I am looking for commissions. You know, I'm, I'm in that weird limbo of, I don't necessarily have a strong agenda for studio work. So if somebody wants to get a hold of me and collaborate or get a mural thing or a sculpture... Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm down to experiment. And, and teaching. You, are you tutor teaching. people or guide people? I do tutors and classes and workshops. Okay. Really, whatever you want. Um, y'all first came and you were talking about wood sculpture, and I was like, hey, I can teach you how to sculpt. Right. Like, right. I'm almost, I'm eager to teach people different things, so a variety of things. 
it, yeah, could, you have it could be abstract work. Huge skill set to, to draw from. So yeah, that's a good advertisement for looking for students because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of people are learning how to are interested in learning a new avenue, a new technique, um, something else to interject into their practice. So wish you all the best. You said you also had a YouTube channel. Do you is that up and running yet, or should people just stay tuned for that? I have two arm wrestling videos on my YouTube, but so yeah, soon I'm going to start loading it with the process videos that I've made and the YouTube is just my name. Yeah. Chris Pontello. Thank you very much. Chris Pontello. We're going to check back in with you. I'm sure in the couple of months, if there's a big change, please let us know. We'll throw a shout out for you. We'll push you once we get our Instagram up and rolling and we'll let people know where to find you too. Cause we wish you the best, man. We Definitely. really do. Thank you. Greatly appreciate it. If you have something that you want to hear or somebody you would like to be interviewed or yourself, you can email us at the10frame at gmail.com. Or you can also direct message us through the Instagram account at the10frame. Bingo, bingo, bongo. Yeah. Peace out.